on the issue. You can probably find examples in your state or at your local level where a particular governor or mayor genuinely changed policy. Getting involved in the process is how citizens hold their representatives accountable. When candidates who pander or appeal to the lowest common denominator do well, they don't really have much incentive to change. It's a lot easier to scare voters about social issues or just campaign on blanket opposition to the other political party than it is to actually govern well and make difficult choices. If your senator or congressman or mayor is doing a good job, vote to re-elect them. Don't just assume they're going to win because their opponents might not get that message. If they're lazy or dishonest or incompetent, try to find a better option and support them instead. Primaries are a good way to do that, and we'll talk about that shortly. Reason to vote number three. Making your voice heard. If that doesn't make you feel inspired and or guilty enough to get involved, look at it this way. The very fact that you're able to vote is a sign of progress. Remember, when the United States was new, most states, and it's the states, not the federal government, that have always had control over voting, only let white men who owned land vote. Expanding voting rights was always a struggle, since the officials in charge had, by definition, benefited from the way things were. After all, the way things were put them in office. Popular movements obviously played a big role, and it sometimes took activists decades of work. But eventually, enough members of Congress and enough state legislators were convinced to pass and ratify the constitutional amendments covered in the last chapter. An 18-year-old African-American woman in 1800 could have been denied the vote because of her age, her race, or her gender. Untold numbers of Americans sacrificed so that today it's illegal to deny the same citizen the vote for any of those reasons. It's hard to deny that expanding voting rights to more citizens has changed the country and changed it for the better. Keep in mind that while the federal government outlaws that kind of discrimination, citizens don't technically have a federal right to vote, and some states handle that right differently. We'll talk about that later in the audiobook when we cover how to vote. First, we'll take a look at how elections work, starting with the big prize, the presidential election. Section 2. Picking the President Now, On the surface, the presidential election can seem relatively simple. It's the only election in which every eligible voter in the country can take part. It's always held on a predictable schedule the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, in other words, between November 2nd and November 8th. It's the world's most talked about and most expensive election. Of course, there's more to it than that. The U.S. presidential election operates differently from any other nations. The Electoral College One uniquely American compromise is that, in this country, the citizens don't vote for the president, at least not technically. Instead, when you go to your polling place on election day, you're actually voting for a team of electors whose names you probably don't recognize, but who will cast an official ballot for the president a few weeks later. The Electoral College started as another compromise by the members of the Constitutional Convention and, just like the other compromises they negotiated, it was what the framers could agree to live with rather than what any side truly wanted. 
The framers didn't want Congress, or state legislators, to pick the president, figuring that would make corruption and deal-making too easy. But they also didn't want a direct election, worried that voters would just go with local candidates and, therefore, only elect candidates from states with a lot of people. Good for New York, but not so good for Delaware. Many of them also didn't trust that the citizens would always make informed choices. Even if they never had to use it, they wanted a safeguard against a dangerous selection. So they again set up a system that was democratic only up to a point, with each state choosing electors. Anyone except federal employees or members of Congress is eligible to be an elector, who would vote on behalf of everyone in the state. To make small states happy, the framers agreed to give each state one elector for every senator, since each state has two, and one for every representative.